If I've told you this before, that was my grandmother's favorite hymn. Uh, and I, I'm sure I've shared this with you. My grandmother came to live with me when she was with us, with my family, when I was a young boy. Uh, she was slowly dying as a result of emphysema, but I can still recall her very vividly at the piano in our living room. She had a lot of difficulty breathing, had an oxygen mask, but I can still vividly recall her almost every day, at least once during the day at some point, singing Amazing, Amazing Grace on the piano. And uh, just singing that song always brings tears to my eyes. So, I didn't cry yet, so I'm good. Let's look at Psalm 15 this evening. Uh, we'll read the text, and then we will we'll get into it. Before we do, I just want to say a special howdy to my friend Ralph. Hello, welcome, I'm glad to see you back tonight, my friend. We've missed you, we've missed you. So, Psalm 15, we'll read the text, and then we'll, we'll get to work. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's ask God to help us. God, we come to you tonight looking again at your word we thank you for the treasure that it is, Lord. We thank you for the precious, precious songs that you gave to the nation of Israel that you have given to us. We thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for David, the man who was inspired by your spirit to write it. We pray, Father, as we look over this text tonight, that we would understand that we would ask ourselves the question, are we to be fellow sojourners with you on your holy hill? Does the character described here match us tonight, Lord? We pray you'd open our eyes to see that, that you'd show us if there's anything that we are lacking in terms of our walk with you. Show us where we need to focus our attention and give us your spirit to help us live faithfully to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Are there any hockey fans here tonight? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, good. Good. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Those of you who are hockey fans tonight, are there any Pittsburgh Penguin fans here tonight? See, I knew there wouldn't be. And so just for fun, I thought I would take the position of Pittsburgh Penguin fan, just to irritate those of you who have other teams that you like. What, what's your, Pastor Al, what's your team? What, what team? Vancouver Canucks, of course, you know, that's what I would have assumed. How about you, James? What's your team? Va the Canucks? Well, there you go. You see, you can't cheer for the Canucks because they never make it to the playoffs, you know? I mean, that's just, that's just the, you, you cheer for them. That's your team, you know? You want to cheer for the Canucks because that's the, the hometown team, you know? That's the closest team to us. But it's, all the, it's always those Americans that can pay higher salaries that get all the good Canadian players. They're the ones that always make it to the Stanley Cup. I don't know if you're a hockey fan. I take it that there's only two hockey fans in the house tonight, and that's a failure, I guess, on the part of your preacher because rule number one in preaching, always consider your audience. My opening illustration tonight is hockey. 
And uh, so it may not connect with all of you. But if you are a hockey fan, which only two of you are, you know that when you go to the hockey game, it's one thing to kind of watch the game from the nosebleed section, you know, the, the seats that are like at the top of the stadium, where you're kind of looking through binoculars down to see what's happening on the ice. It's one thing to watch the game there, but the best place that you want to be in order to watch a game is in the owner's box. In any arena, around the arena, there's going to be private suites that are built, private places where you can sit and there's a comfortable couch and you can lounge and it's at a more opportune viewing distance to what's happening on the ice in the arena there. You want to be in the owner's box, they'll bring you your drink, they'll bring you your food, they will serve you there in the owner's box and you can see it has the best view in the house, you can see what's going on and you're in unmitigated comfort enjoying the game. The psalm that we're looking at here tonight essentially poses the question, how do we get in the owner's box? That's the question. Now, in this day and age, I want you to understand it's a relatively easy thing to get into an owner's box or a club box of some form in a hockey arena. But the counsel offered here in Psalm 15 in terms of how to get into the true owner's box is much more profound than just forking out $250 or $300 for a high-priced hockey ticket. Look at what is said here. David poses the question. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Israel, by this point in time, by the time that this psalm is written, they are largely settled. There are tribes that have their land and their different houses and their different territories that have all been allotted to them. They've got their nice log cabin. They've got their fields, their pastures, their farms. But it's a culture, it's a society that can still recall nomadic Bedouin-type living. And indeed, as they keep watch over their flocks by night, they undoubtedly will still spend a significant amount of their time out of the house during the year, walking with their flocks as they're grazing, and they're going to pitch a tent to sleep with their flocks during the summer months in particular, with their flocks out in the fields by night, keeping watch over them, making sure that there are no predators that will come and attack, no bears or wolves or anything of this type. And so when David poses the question, who, who gets to stay in God's tent? As far as your typical Israelite is concerned, whenever you're out keeping the flocks, everybody's got their tent. All the shepherds will have their own little tent, their own little abode. And then the top dog, the, the guy who's in charge, he's going to have the nicest tent. You see up on the hill in the distance there, the one overlooking the whole operation? That's the owner's tent. Now here he's referencing God. The term that he uses is tent. It's translated tent. But tent, as it's addressed here in this particular psalm, is an even more loaded term. Tabernacle is what he actually says. Who gets to stay in God's tent or who gets to stay in God's tabernacle? Who gets to abide on his holy hill where God resides? And again, you, if you know your Israelite history, if you're familiar with your Bible, tabernacle before and even now in this point in time in which David is writing, this is how they worship God. There is not yet a permanent built temple. There is no solid structure that has been erected. The, God dwells in a tabernacle, essentially a very ornate and elaborate tent. And within that tent, the design, the concept of the whole thing is intended to convey to you, the worshiper, that not just anybody gets to go near God. 
There's outside the tent, which anybody is allowed to do, and then there's inside the tent, which only the people of Israel get to do. They get to come in there into the outer chamber where they can offer sacrifices and worship, and eventually the priest will take that sacrifice, will take that blood, and he will then go into an inner tent, into the holy of holies, as it is described, and only the high priest is permitted into that place, and he only goes in once a year. Okay, this is all intended to convey the idea that only certain people get to enter into that holy of places. So, David poses the question, who gets to go? Who gets to go into the owner's box? Who gets to go into the lap of luxury? Who gets to dwell in God's tabernacle, in his tent, on his holy hill? It's a profound question. And something that should confront us, because that's the only question that really matters. In modern parlance, it would be, it's the equivalent of saying, who is it that gets to go to heaven? Who is it that is saved? Who is it that gets to spend eternity in paradise with God the Father? Now, there's a little bit of a twist on this song. And you might think me a heretic as we begin to work our way through it. But just listen all the way to the end, okay? Listen all the way to the end. You might get the impression that what you do, what works you engage in, get you into heaven. Because what David is about to do with this psalm, after posing that question, who gets saved, who gets to go to heaven, who gets to live with God, he's now going to transition to specific types of behavior. You might be tempted to think you got to behave a certain way to get into heaven, but just wait until the end. We're getting there, okay? Don't assume that your pastor's gone all works-based salvation, okay? Let's just have a little grace and follow the psalm all the way through, all the way through. Who gets to go to heaven? Verse 2. Now, I'm going to break this up into three, three components. The first thing that David is going to tell us is that a person of honor goes to heaven, a person of honor goes to heaven. The second thing that David is going to tell us is that a person of honor will seek to cultivate a culture of honor and shame. Those are things that matter to him. And the third thing that David is going to tell us is that for the person who is going to heaven, there is incumbent upon him certain obligations or duties that he will undertake. So let's begin to walk our way through this. The first thing he says in verse 2, he says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So it's a piece of cake, guys. You want to go to heaven? Just be perfect. Okay? That's all you got to do. All right? The answer that David says is the person whose walk in life is blameless. There is no accusation, there's no charge, there's no criticism that you can make against that person. He is faultless, he is pure in the way that he walks. So it's very simple. You want to go to heaven, just be perfect. Now, all of you in this room are thinking to yourself, okay, well, what if I'm not perfect? What, what's plan B? Well, just stick with us. We'll work our way through the, to the end of the psalm. Walk blameless, do what is right, and speak truth in his heart. Now, even though these descriptions may not reflect who we are, they are still a description of the character of person that God is making us into. Number one, a person who is blameless, that is, the way that he conducts himself, the way that he acts, there is nobody that can point a finger at him and say that that person did something wrong. 
There is no way that you are guilty of any trespass or any sin, any theft or any crime against your fellow man. You are a man that lives honorably amongst those around you. It says, he walks blamelessly, he actively does what is right, and he speaks truth in his heart. That means that this is an individual who doesn't put on a different persona or a different face for this individual and then act a totally different way with this individual. This is an individual who doesn't necessarily say one thing to person A and then says something totally different to person B. This is a person whose truth is a part of who they are. They speak truth in their own heart. They take what is real, what is true, what is actual fact, bring it into their inner person. And this is a person who's honest with everybody. It's not a game of saying different things to different people. He is first and foremost honest with himself, and that honesty colors his whole life. So he's blameless, and he actively does what is right. He seeks to do good, and he speaks truth in his heart. He's honest with those around him, and he is honest with himself. Verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. To slander or to gossip. That's what David is getting at. And slander or gossip are often considered among the acceptable sins that can be tolerated within the church. It's true, I I suppose you could say that slander and gossip aren't as heinous or as uh, immediately damaging as, say, theft. But did you know that the New Testament says that slander is like murder? Because when you attack a man's reputation... You're assaulting his standing in the eyes of others. So when you slander him or you gossip about him, you repeat information that is not true, and you invariably do it in order to lower the way that he is viewed by his peers to diminish his standing in their eyes. To attack a person's reputation is like murder. It's an act of hatred. David's statement here is, the person who lives in God's holy hill, who dwells with the Lord, He is actively seeking to do what is right. He is blameless. He speaks truth, and he doesn't engage in slander, and he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. That's what the statement is. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, and look at the second half of verse 3, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. All three of those statements are saying the same thing. I remember a number of years ago, now you're hockey, some of you are hockey fans, I'm a football fan. A number of years ago, I was in seminary, and... uh, There were about four of us standing around in between classes. We were done with one class, and we were waiting for the next class to begin, and we were in the hall. And one of the seminary students began to speak very derogatorily about another student. And I was sitting there listening to this whole thing, and and one of my friends, George, he was listening to all of this, and you need to understand, I'm in a rabid Dallas Cowboys football fan. Being from Texas, Dallas Cowboys, that's who I'm cheering for. My friend George does not like Dallas Cowboys. He doesn't like football, period. So this other seminary student starts to derogatorily criticize an, another student that we, that we know and begins to slander him. And my friend George starts to say things like, you know what, I think Tony Romo is going to help us win the football game tonight. Remember, he doesn't like football. And I'm listening to this one guy slander and besmirch the character of this other student. 
And then my non-football friend starts talking football. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really interesting. He says, you know, the first gentleman makes the comment, you know, it's just horrible the way that he does this. Don't you agree? And I'm, I'm sitting here considering his statement. And my friend George says, I agree that Tony Romo is going to help us win that football game tonight. Okay. And then this other student begins again to attack and besmirch and defame. And he says, you know, I really think we can, we can win against the Chicago Bears tonight. This is what George says. Now, you know it's bad when a guy that doesn't even watch football is giving you advice about football. That's a not-so-subtle way of saying, you have better things to talk about. In offering the gossip, you can sit there and listen to it, or you can refuse to take that gossip and you can actively seek to change the subject. A reproach is offered, and the text says does not the person who's going to live in heaven does not take the reproach. So a person who's going to heaven is a person who does not speak evil, does not, uh, does not slander. He says, does not slander. He speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor. And he doesn't take up the reproach. So number one, a righteous person is not the person who's offering the gossip or offering the slander. But when gossip and slander comes to him, when it is offered, the righteous person is described here in the psalm as not picking it up, which is exactly what my friend George did. When you offer forth the comments, when you offer forth the slander, if you say, yeah, you're right, or you say, you know what, and also this, and you add to it, you're engaging in that sinful behavior. And a person that goes to heaven has the character of an individual who is blameless, who does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart, who does not engage in slander or gossip, and he doesn't participate when others engage in gossip and slander. He actively finds ways to change the subject or to silence that kind of talk. So this is what it means to be honored, to have honor. And I've shared this with you before. If we look at different parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament, we understand that what honor is, is it is a certain amount of respect and admiration that is given to an individual for the purposes of influencing others for good. Okay? If you are honored, then it is an individual who is held up before another group of individuals, and, they are, and the individual that holds him up says, this is a person who is good, who does what is good, and you want to hold that individual up so that he will exert a godly influence over other people. And what David is saying here is that this is an individual, the individual that goes to heaven is an individual who has honor. It is intrinsic to him. He is blameless. He does what is right. And the most basic sin that all of us have been guilty at from one time or another, even down to the way that he uses his tongue and engages in daily conversations and daily speech, his words will not take away from the reputation of others. And he will not be a participant to that. This is a godly man. This is a man that has honor. He has honor, and he seeks to cultivate a culture of honor, which is what the next verse is about to say. Look at the first part of verse 4. In whose eyes 
a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. My friend George was always real big on recognizing and honoring the achievements of those individuals who were, in his eyes, godly. He was not the kind of person that you'd ever hear saying a bad word about anybody. In fact, just the opposite. He would always be careful to say, did you notice so-and-so and how they helped that lady in church today? Wasn't that great? Wasn't that selfless? He was always quick to point out to you the positive things that he noticed in other people to show honor to those people. He would not engage in gossip and just the opposite. He would honor those people who demonstrated in their life a heart for God. That all sounds well and good. Say, yeah, I'm on board with that preacher. I want to honor people who live for the Lord. I want to honor people who are godly, who walk with the Lord. But the second part of the verse is where we struggle. And we despise those who are wicked. You see, if everybody is honorable, then honor loses its sense of meaning. If everyone is special, then that's another way of just saying that no one is really special. If we are to give honor to everyone, if we always find honor in everything that everyone is doing to find something positive, then we've missed the thrust of this verse because it's actually a very finely balanced coin here. We give honor to those individuals who are godly and who fear the Lord. And notice what it says. A blameless person will despise a vile person. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. What does that mean to despise someone? The scripture says already that we don't take up a reproach against our friends. We don't go out and gossip and slander and besmirch their character. We don't repeat those things, but yet at the same time, it's important for us to recognize that when we associate with people, when we have friends with people, when we're friends with people, when we engage in friendship, we need to associate with people who honor the Lord, and if they are vile individuals, if they oppose God, these are not necessarily individuals that we want to cuddle up with and make friends with. Now, hear me very carefully. The gospel calls us to love everyone and to share the truth of Jesus Christ with everyone. We're called to love everyone in the sense that we offer to everyone the opportunity of salvation. But friends exert a spiritual influence on our lives. They can either boost your morale or they can drag you down. They can either make you feel positive about your pursuit of Christ or they can quietly ridicule you and mock you. And the scripture's exhortation here is the person who lives in God's tent would despise an individual that would talk against God and that would in any way belittle our pursuit of God. And we love the whole honor part. That's easy. But are we as disciplined in turning our ears and our attention away from those individuals who are clearly, clearly intending to lead us away from the Lord? That's the challenge. So the person who is going to live in God's holy hill is blameless, speaks truth in his heart, does not slander or engage in gossip. He is an honorable person. 
number one. Number two, he cultivates a culture of honor where he himself will regard honorable those individuals who walk with the Lord and he will despise those individuals who are vile. And number three, a person who lives on God's holy hill is an individual who understands that as a result of their walk with God, they have an obligation to take care of those around them. Some specific things are mentioned here. The, beginning, the second part of verse 4 says, Who swears to his own harm, yet does not change. Verse 5, first part of verse 5, Who does not put out his money at interest. Second part of verse 5, And he does not take a bribe against the innocent. Number one, he makes a commitment with his words. He says, this is how it's going to be. He commits himself. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And if he didn't even fully understand the commitment he was making, and then he realizes afterwards what it was that he signed up for, it does not matter. He is going to keep his word. He says, here's the deal. I'm going to enter into a business relationship with you. I am going to contract you to engage in certain services. And this is the part that I'm going to do. And this is the part that I'm going to ask you to do. And then when they really get into it, they start peeling back all the different layers of the legalities. For example, say that there's untold zoning codes that are involved in terms of what you can do or not do. And there's all kinds of different permits you have to secure from the city. And the cost comes out to say it's going to be more expensive. You contracted a man to do some work in your home. This is the proposal. This is what his labor is going to cost. But the unforeseen cost that you didn't expect was the cost of getting permits and zoning and all of this from the city. Now, do you just say to this individual, well, this is my bottom dollar for the whole project? Or do you pay the additional fees for all the zoning and all the permits that you did not foresee? And continue to keep the amount pledged to the individual doing the labor. Now, sometimes we enter into agreements and we don't understand all the ins and outs of what we're signing up for. We just don't. My pastor, 16 years, uh, no, no, 14 years ago, Cedar Heights Baptist Church, we're doing a revival. One of those old-timey kind of revivals where you bring in a guest speaker for five nights and you go out and you invite everyone to come into the church and from Sunday night to Wednesday night, every night it's gospel evangelistic preaching. My pastor approached me and said, would you be a pew captain? Now, I was 23 at the time. I had never heard that term in my life. I don't even know what it is. I was honored that he was asking me to do it. So I said, sure, I'll be a pew captain. That was not the wisest thing to say. A pew captain is responsible for making sure that pew is packed every single night. You're the one going out and inviting people. I didn't know that many people. <laughs> I was a seminary student. All the people I knew were pretty much Christians. I wasn't like working at a, a, you know, a warehouse or you know, some job where I could invite my coworkers to come to church. More than that, a pew captain is responsible for making sure that the pew is completely clean after every, every worship service. Make sure all the, you know, gum wrappers, all the little bits and paper and all that stuff are picked up. More than that, a pew captain is responsible for the follow-up follow contact and the, the discipleship of the individuals after the evangelistic revival service is over. Now, I had no idea any of that was involved. I was in the middle of Hebrew finals. 
Some of you are like, well, what difference does that make? Trust me. When you're in the middle of Hebrew finals, you do not have the time to be a pew captain. But I said yes. When he explained to me what was involved, I said, ooh, I don't know. And I love Mrs. Royce Dodds. And he's still my pastor. I still, we keep in touch to, to this very day. I said, Pastor Royce, I know I said yes, but now that I'm hearing all the different ins and outs of what's involved in this, I said, number one, I don't know that I could possibly be a good pew captain. I don't know that I'm going to get the pew packed with as many people as you want me to have it packed with. Number two, I'm, I'm quite busy. He said, you know, the Bible says something about this sort of thing. And he took me here to Psalm 15. He said, a man of integrity will swear to his own hurt, and yet he will not change. He will keep his word. Now, you think he's being hard on me? He's not. He's not. Was it a tough job? Yes. Did I agree to it without understanding it? Yes. Laying aside the responsibilities that he's putting on me as a 22-year-old seminary student, laying aside that for a second, let's understand, who do we represent in all of our dealings? We represent the Lord. When we make a commitment to something, if it turns out to be harder than what we initially thought it would be, is the Christian's response to say, I can't do this, or is the Christian's response to say, God, I represent you. Help me. Help me to succeed. See, what David is saying is that my pastor wasn't being hard on me. He was helping me to see who I needed to turn to for help. And that lesson has always stayed with me because anytime somebody asks me to do something, I always say, hey, why don't you explain to me exactly what it is you're expecting from me first, and then I'll pray about it, and I'll let you know whether I've got time in my schedule. I do recognize that there's only so much that I can achieve in a given day, but I also recognize that my words are not my own anymore. The words that come out of my mouth, they belong to the Lord. And I really think that's at the heart of a lot of what David is saying here. See, what you say is a reflection of your heart. The person that goes to live in heaven with God is blameless. He actively does what is right. He speaks truth in his heart. Did you notice that expression there? It doesn't gossip or slander. It doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He cultivates an honor, a culture of honor and shame. And when he makes commitments, even when he doesn't fully understand what he's committing to, even when he, as, as, the, as the psalm says, swears to his own hurt, he doesn't change. That's what the psalmist is saying. Here's the second thing. He will not put out his money at interest. In the same way that your words belong to the Lord, guess what is going to happen with your money? And I'm not trying to belittle this. A dollar bill is a reflection of your life. 
A loonie is a reflection of your time and your energy. You see, that dollar bill is not insignificant. It is actually a significant sort of numerical denominator of an amount of time and energy that you had to sacrifice in order to earn that dollar bill. For every dollar bill you have, that's a portion of your life invested into achieving that dollar bill, which you can never get back. Money is not an insignificant thing. Trust me, I understand. You go to work, you work from nine to five. Some of you work even crazier hours than that. You work 12-hour shifts or even 14-hour shifts. You work three, four days a week, one week. You're on all types of different shift changes. You're up in the middle of the night. You're working at the crack of dawn. That money that you earn is precious to you. You earned it. You worked for it. But guess what? The words which you are capable of forming belong to the Lord, which means that the time and the energy that you put into earning your money, guess who owns that as well? See, as a Christian, we understand that our energy at our jobs, our ability to work and to translate time and energy into dollar bills, that belongs to the Lord, which means that the way we use our money matters to him because he was the one that enabled us to earn it in the first place. And here's how we are not to use our money. If you see a friend in need, a brother who is hard up, who is perhaps destitute or struggling, and he comes to you and he says, can I borrow some money? You're free to loan him that money. You ought to loan him that money. But the scripture says that you will not take it back at interest. Now, I understand in the world of corporations and the world of business, high finance and all of that, those are things that I think the scripture would agree to. But the context here is, again, these are nomadic sort of shepherd people. They live together and they're related to each other. And so if you have a brother, a near kinsman, who is not well off, you don't take advantage of their misfortune by loaning them the money that they need and then charging interest for its return. You say, but wait a minute, that's my money. I worked hard for that money. I earned that money. Is it my fault that I have money that I can share? Am I to be blamed for that? No. You're not to be blamed for that but you're not to be thanked for it. God provides for you. All your money belongs to the Lord. And here's the third thing. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, for the most part, you and I don't sit on juries. Some of you may have sat on a jury before. I racked my brain to kind of think of what a modern-day example of this would be, and here's the best I got. You're called into jury duty. You hear a case... And then the jury begins to deliberate, and you might be the only person that thinks this guy is innocent, and all the rest of your 10, 12 jury members, whatever, they're convinced he's guilty, but you're convinced he's not. And it goes on and on and on for four or five, six, seven days, and they start to say things like, I got to get back to my job. I got to get back to my family. And maybe even you need to get back to your job, or you need to get back to your family. And scriptures are saying, that the temptation of just getting the jury duty over with and maybe perhaps agreeing to a sentence that you may not actually agree with just for the sake of your convenience to get back home to your family or your job, that is not what a righteous person does. 
I thank God that I don't sit on jury duty. I'm sure some of you are wishing you didn't have to sit on them either. To sit and stand in judgment over a person's innocence. The Lord says that you will not be unduly persuaded by any personal profit or benefit or consideration to yourself. You will say what is right. That's a righteous person. Now, throughout this whole thing, David is talking about the person who gets to go into the Lord's tabernacle, who gets to be with God. Watching Christianity through the years, starting in the early 90s and the early 2000s and now here into the the teen years of the 21st century, you'll notice that there are always these trends, you know, in terms of evangelical Christianity, the big focus this decade is on this particular issue, and the next decade it's on this particular issue. Do you know what it is presently? It's presently on worship. We've got to have good worship in our churches. Generally, you have to sing a certain way, there's a certain style of worship, and that's all the big focus. You go to all the big conferences, any kind of evangelical gathering where they're discussing what is the next big thing in the church, this is all the focus the songs that we sing, and how we sing them. Now, don't misunderstand me. Worship is important. Singing music is good. I like music. I have a particular preference myself. But as we look here at Psalm 15, the person who goes to heaven, was there anything described about this person's character in terms of the style of their worship? This is a song that is sung in the temple, a song which describes the individual who goes to heaven, and in terms of who this individual is, it says not one iota about their preference of worship style, and it has everything to do with their heart and their character. I can't help but wonder sometimes when we get in all these debates in terms of how to improve the church, if we aren't missing the mark entirely. It's not so much what goes on in a church service as much as what is going on in the heart of the worshiper. God is interested in character. He's interested in who you are in terms of your heart. So, pastor, what you're saying is that if I want to go to heaven, I've got to be blameless, perfect, upright, do justice, not take up a reproach against my, my neighbor, not engage in slander. I have to speak truth in my heart. I have to uh, swear, and when I swear, when I make promises, when I make commitments, I've got to keep them, even if I find out after the fact that I... It's really not my own best interest. You're, you're saying i got to do all those things if I want to go to heaven? Well, have you done all those things perfectly up until this point? Notice the last phrase of the psalm. He who does these things shall never be moved. Did you notice that phrase, shall never be moved? Now, the psalm begins with the question, how do we get in? And it concludes with the answer, those guys never get out. Did you catch that? The psalmist begins posing the question, how do we get into God's tent? He goes through, he describes the character of a worshiper of God, and he concludes with the statement, that person will never be kicked out of the tent. Which means that if you want to get into the tent, the answer is not fully contained here in this psalm. The answer that the psalm poses to the question, who gets in, is to describe the heart and the character of a person who's already in, and that person is never going to be kicked out. That's what the psalmist answers. 
So if you're singing this psalm, you're in the temple, you're having a worship service, the question still remains. It's not fully answered in this psalm. How does a person get into the Holy of Holies in the first place? And the individual who answers that is Jesus Christ. In John 14, 15, Jesus makes the statement, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then a little later on in verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. This psalm here talks about keeping the Lord's commandments. And if you've ever tried to keep the Lord's commandments, you know it is really, really hard. But at the end of the day, the source of obedience is love for Jesus. Which means fundamentally, the individual who lives on God's holy hill is a person who loves God. And you can't do that on your own. The last verse I want to leave you with tonight comes from Ezekiel. It's a promise that God gives. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. That prophecy promises that the only way any of us goes to heaven is if God will actually change our hearts. And he has to change our heart away from being self-centered, doing what is convenient, thinking that we are in control of our own speech, thinking that we're in control of our own money, thinking that we get to do as we please. All of that has to be cast to the side and replaced with a love for God. And the only one that can change your heart from a heart that is self-absorbed and sinful and wicked is God himself. And he gives you a new heart and actually enables you to do those things. So Pittsburgh won this year. The Penguins beat the San Jose Sharks. Any Sharks fans? Really? No. He's just messing. As we look at all the different uh, competitions of this life, whether you're a Sharks fan whether you're a Penguins fan or whether you're a Canucks fan. There's no competition to get into heaven. But you do want to be in the owner's spot. And he can help you get there. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you save us by your word. We thank you, God, that you promised to take out our heart of flesh and to replace it, our, our heart of stone, excuse me, a heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh. God, more and more, our cry and our call to you is that you would help us to actually strive to be the people that you empower us to become. Help us to choose you, to follow you, to walk with you, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would grant every resolve of every decision that we make in faith to honor you with our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be the blameless people that David talks about in Psalm 15. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.